<clears throat> did you ever think about running away from home? I never actually tried it, but I did have a plan that I learned from watching cartoons. I knew how to do it. That I was, if, if push came to shove, I was going to take a lunch, pack it up in a polka dot knapsack, tie it to the end of a stick, and then go see what the world had to offer me. That was going to be my plan. Now, I'm glad I thought better of it. I wouldn't have made it half an hour in the real world. I'm 36. I, don't, I wouldn't make it half an hour today. I've got no life skills, okay? I need, I need to stay where I am. But it's interesting that that thought, it, it occurred to me growing up more than once, the thought of running away. And even if you never had the guts to do it, it probably, you probably occurred to you too because there's something about us, it's innate, it's in all of us, that we like to set our own agenda. We like to, we at least like the thought of stepping out from under the authority and the rules, the things that we think are unfair or unjust, going out on our own and dictating how we're going to live. It's an intoxicating temptation. This idea that anything that is against me or that's unfair or that's above me, I've got to loosen the chains and go and do my own thing. See, that's, that, that's in all of us. And it's much deeper than just the relationship between children and parents in the home. What I just described is actually a deeply spiritual thing. The desire that we all have to not be accountable to anybody, to be free, that desire is spiritual. And so it's interesting to me, at least, that the most famous story in the Bible, the most famous story Jesus ever told, is a story about a person who runs away from God. It's what Jesse just read for us. It's called the story of the prodigal son. We find it in Luke chapter 15. I hope you've got a Bible open or the Bible on your phone to Luke 15, because we're going to walk through this story together. But I want to say something up front. What's clear, I hope, up front is that the prodigal son story although it was shared in a very different time and place and to a different audience, it's not a story about somebody else. You may, as we walk through the story, have in mind somebody that it, would, that it would apply to. That's great. But I want us to be clear that this story is about you and it's about me. This is a story about us. And what's even greater, it's a story about God. Jesus is going to make it clear to us what the heart of God looks like when it comes to you and me, and we find that all in this wonderful story. And so here's, here's the very simple truth that I want us to walk away with today. I'm going to tell you up front that we are, all of us, you and me both, that we are runaways. We are rebels. We're prodigals. Our sin separates us from God. That's the reality. But there is no sin so great. There's no sin in your life so great or so long-lasting even that God can't redeem by his grace. God's mission to us through his son, Jesus Christ, is to seek and to save that which is lost. And so what we find in Luke 15 is a story that illustrates that better than any story anybody ever told, the greatest story there ever was right here. Now, before we get into the meat of it, what Jesse read for us beginning in verse 11, I want you actually to backtrack with me to verse 1. There's some really important context Luke's going to give us as to why Jesus told this story and what it's for. We might tend to think that Jesus kind of walked around the countryside just randomly telling parables, you know. Um, not here, not here. Something happened that, that produced this story, okay? And, and we see it in Luke 15, verse 1. Luke tells us the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him. But the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with him. Now, right here in the very same space, in the same audience, 
Luke tells us we've got two distinct groups of people. That on one hand, we have the ultra-religious, the scribes and the Pharisees. These are the good and moral guys. These are the church leaders of the day. But on the other side, we've got the tax collectors and the sinners. These are the people despised in their culture for the way they've chosen to live. They are low down on the moral ladder. They're the bad people. At least that's how the scribes and Pharisees esteem them. They're disgusted by them. And what's even worse, from their perspective, they're disgusted by Jesus. Do you notice their accusation? How can a man who claims to be from God allow these urchins anywhere near him? That's what they're wondering. And therefore, Jesus tells a story. He tells a story to both groups. He actually tells three stories. We're going to look at the third of the three here. But the prodigal son story is a story meant for both groups of people in this audience right here. And of course, it's meant for you and me too. And he begins in verse 11. You see it? Very simple story. He says, a man had two sons. Now, this is not a true story. This is a parable. A man had two sons. There's a father and two sons. Real quickly, up front, let's, let's establish characters here. These are all representative. The man, the father in this story, is meant to represent God. And then the two sons are representative of the two groups of people that Jesus is speaking with right here. You've got the older son. This is the good religious person. We're going to talk about him next week. Then you've got the younger son. This is the bad kid. This is the wayward child, the tax collector and the sinner. That's who this younger son represents. He's our focus for today. Look at verse 12. So the younger of this man's two sons says to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. That may not shock you as you read it. Maybe you've read it enough times that it doesn't come across as as shocking, But I can tell you right now, the audience in Jesus' day, their jaws would have been on the floor as they heard this story begin. Absolutely, utterly shocking. Because what we have is a son, a young man, demanding the share of the inheritance from his father early. Now, we all know what an inheritance is. It's something that perhaps a loved one might give you after they die, after they die, after they die, right? But here in this story, we've got a son effectively saying to his father, Dad, I wish you were dead now. And what he's communicating in demanding the inheritance, he's saying to his dad, Dad, the only reason I'm even here, all I really want from you is what you can give me. It's your stuff. So why not just hand it over now and save us the trouble of me having to waste my life under your roof? Kyle, you're exaggerating. Uh, not really. No, see, y'all, this is, in, this is a traditional culture. The ancient Near East is what we call an honor and shame culture. The two dominant things that you had to have. You had to have honor. You had to avoid shame. That's how everyone was judged. That's how the ladder was drawn up. And that's how you became who you were, right? You forsook shame and you took on honor in an honorable way of life. What this son is doing is dishonoring his family, which was the worst thing of all. He's saying to his dad, give me what you've got. That's all I really want. And I'm out of here. This is the greatest insult imaginable. And the father, in this moment, would have had every right to drag this wicked, ungrateful son of his into the public square and have him put to death over this. Now, if that sounds extreme, it's called an honor killing. 
There are cultures today in this world that still practice it. If you dishonor our family, you die. That's how important this is. And so it's a shocking way for Jesus to communicate a story. No son would ever treat his father this disgracefully. But you know what's even more shocking is what the father actually does in response. The father does not punish his son. He gives him the money. He liquidates his assets and he gives the son what he asked for and he willingly lets him go. And so this younger son, he packs up all his stuff. He clearly has no intention of ever coming home. And he sets off for a distant country. He goes somewhere far away. He goes to Las Vegas, if that helps us to kind of frame things up. He goes to a place where there are no rules, where your reputation doesn't matter. He's got no reputation to live up to in this foreign place. Nobody knows him. He goes to a place where his father can't watch over him. He's outside of his father's jurisdiction. He goes to a place where he can finally fulfill all the fantasies he ever held in his heart. If there's anything that this young man ever wanted to do, he could now make it a reality with seemingly no consequences. He was not accountable anymore. He was free. This thing that he so desperately wanted, he now finally had it in his grasp. He was free. Y'all, when we talk about rebellion, because that's the issue at stake here, we don't need to get lost in the details. We don't need to get lost in the detail about the money. The money's really not the issue here. Nor is the, is the true issue the, the individual sins that this son was committing. Jesus calls it loose living. We find out later, we'll find out next week, the, the older son recognizes that there was, he was soliciting prostitutes. He was doing a lot of things that are, are, are unsavory today. They were especially sinful back then in his culture. But that's really not the ultimate issue here. The ultimate issue when we talk about this kind of rebellion is that there's a son who has rejected his father. It's not so much that he's broken the rules, it's that he's broken relationship. That's the key of the prodigal son story, that the son runs away from, out from under his father's love and provision and protection and authority. He wasn't just breaking rules, he was breaking the relationship apart. And y'all, that's where all of us, all of us, enter into this story. That's where, if we're honest with our own hearts, we find ourselves right here in this story because what the Son is doing here is the essence of all sin. The essence of all sin. And so think about, you just, in your own mind, in your own heart, think about any sin that you presently struggle with or that you in your past have struggled with. Maybe it's a fairly recent issue for you or maybe it's long-standing. It's been here for a long time and you just can't seem to kick it. Any sin that's in your life, that's in my life, at its root is a declaration of a rejection of God. It's not simply that I dabble in some bad behaviors. Sin, by its very definition, is a rejection of God. It's when we say in our heart, I'm not satisfied in him, and therefore I'll find my satisfaction elsewhere. I'm not content to be under God's authority, and so I'm going to run out from under his authority. I'm going to break through his boundaries. I'm going to live how I want to live. And y'all, that... When we typically, when we sin, I trust that this is probably true of you, we're not sinning out of some malicious hatred of God to say, you know what, I'm going to hitch my wagon to the devil today. I'm going to see just how bad I can be. Typically, no, I don't think you probably wake up in the morning thinking that. What we typically do when we sin is we're just trying to be happy. We're trying to be fulfilled, and we're just sure that there's some way that we can be fulfilled, that we can be satisfied, that we can find our identity, that we can be included, 
in, in a certain group of people, there's, there's got to be a way to do that. And of course, the illegitimate way is always sinful. God has created us to, to uh, exist under a certain authority. God has created boundaries to protect us, not to kill us, not to make us miserable, but we're just so sure we can find life outside of him and therefore we sin. We're seeking life outside of God. The problem is this, whether you think your sin is great or very small, whether it's solicitation of prostitutes or whether it's simple white lies and gossip, whatever you think it is, whether great or small in your estimation, the truth at the end of the day is this, you're not just breaking a rule, you're breaking relationship with God. And your sin is separating you from him. It separates me from my heavenly father. And in that sense, y'all, we've all run away from home. We're all prodigals. Now, does the younger son recognize this as he's going? Of course not. None of this is registering with him. He's having the time of his life, apparently. He's throwing the money around, fake friends hanging all over him. He's the life of the party, right? But as it is with sin, always the party runs out. The money runs out. Everything comes to a screeching halt, and he's made his bed. Now he's got a lie in it. Look what happens in verse 14. Now, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, a depression, and he began to be impoverished. And so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. Money runs out, the economy goes bust, the party's over, and the son finds himself in a place he never thought possible. He is a Jewish man feeding filthy pigs. Uh, He's living in poverty and in disgrace. I think Jesus' point at this stage of the story, I think his point's very clear. That sin always over-promises but under-delivers. Don't you know that's true? Sin over-promises, but under-delivers. We sin because we're sure that that sin is going to fulfill us in some way, make us happy in some way, include us with others in some way, but in reality, that sin, no matter how small we think it is, that sin always enslaves us. It puts us in a type of prison where we think we're free, but in reality, we're not, because sin cannot, will not fulfill you. Even if it gives temporary, a, a temporary sense of happiness or high, it cannot do what you're sure it will do for you. Sin does not fill, it only empties. Sin does not give, it only takes. And here's a young man, look, he, he's, he's convinced as he sets off for this journey that he's finally free. And in the end, he finds out that he's become a slave. In his case, a literal slave. But so much more, he's become a slave to his own desires and they have failed him. Y'all, this, this is the default position of humanity. I don't like to think of myself this way. You probably don't either. But what the scripture declares about you and me, Romans chapter 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even if you and I try very hard to be good, our default is this. We fall short of his glory because of our sin. Jesus said in John 8, we read this uh, this past week in our Bible reading plan, John 8, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin becomes a slave of sin. We tend to think that we can manage sin, we can coddle it, we can keep it in the crock pot on warm for when we want to access it. Jesus says, no, you become its slave. You can't control it. It controls you. We are prodigals. This is our story, every single one of us. Now, that's bad news. 
But this is not a bad news sermon, praise God. This is a good news sermon. This is a good news story. The story's only half over. Look with me at verse 17, because here everything's going to change. It says that the son, verse 17, when he came to his senses, I love that phrase. There's a lot in that little phrase right there. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. So make me as one of your hired men. Y'all, this is what's called repentance. We talked about rebellion. Now let's talk about repentance. When the sun hits rock bottom, when he's at his lowest point, you know what he does? You see it? He owns it. He doesn't blame everybody else for his problems, which may be a natural thing for us to do. He owns it. He says, I have sinned. I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against my father. Okay? The son, this, in this moment at least, he's no longer the lazy, entitled, ungrateful punk that he was at the beginning of the story. He's finally been humbled. His eyes have been opened to reality. Not just the reality around him, but the reality within him. And so this is more, we see, it's, it's a confession, yes, but it's more than a confession. Because repentance is more than a confession. To acknowledge our sin is a huge first step, but it's not the only step. Do you see what the son does? He says, I will get up and go to my father. And that is so key. He doesn't just wallow in self-pity over what he's done. He says, I've got to get up and go back, okay? Because he, here's the deal. No matter how bad it's gotten for him, no matter how bad what he did was... Surely this son is thinking in his heart, if there's one shred of hope for me in this world, where is it? It's back home. If there's any hope for me right now in my despair, it's with dad. He knew his dad well enough to know that that was the case. And so he doesn't just feel bad about his sin. He gets up and he goes home. And y'all, this is so important for us when we think about repentance this is going to sound strange, perhaps, but hear me out. The solution to your sin and mine, the solution to your sin, is not to stop sinning. The most natural thing in the world for us is to think, I, I see the destructiveness of this sin in my life, I hate it, I don't want it anymore, and so I'm done with it. I'm going to quit. In fact, we'll promise, I promise I'll never do it again. Now, I don't know if you've ever done that, you probably have, I have. It didn't work, did it? How many times have I promised myself, promised God, I'll never do that again. I'll never look at that again. I'll never, I'll never go there again. And of course, I find myself right back there. There may be a probationary period where I'm doing really well in my self-control, but given enough time, my will fails and I go right back to it. Because repentance is not simply trying harder to do better. No, true repentance only happens when we do what this son does. He does not trust in his own righteousness that he and his own efforts can somehow overcome his situation. No, the son does the only thing he can do. He acknowledges his sin, but then he goes home. He turns back to God. And repentance is just that. It's the only hope we have. You, you can promise yourself up and down all day long that you'll do better and you will fail every time because you don't have the righteousness within you to produce that. You have to turn to God. You have to come back home because, listen, only Jesus, only Jesus can actually grant you the forgiveness that will purify your sin, that will purify your heart. Something you can't produce, only he can give it to you. Only Jesus can grant you the righteousness that actually brings change and transformation to your heart. 
So many of us think that if I got myself into this mess, I'll get myself out. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps. That's the, that's the, that's the natural way. That's the American way, right? But no, in Christ, we only actually change when we come home to him, when we come to God. Now, when we do what the Son does, refusing to simply wallow in self-pity, refusing to try in our own will to make ourselves righteous, we come home. What do we find when we get there? And here's where the story really becomes uh, something. Look at verse 20. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I spoke a little bit earlier about the, the culture, the time and place here that if you disgrace your family, if you dishonor the family, you're out. You're dead to us, right? But what has his father been doing? He's not living by the cultural mandate here. Apparently, I mean, if, we, if we're reading between the lines, it seems like the father, day by day, has been just scanning the horizon, watching the horizon, waiting, perhaps, to see his boy show up. And then he sees him. And of course, as his father, he'd know his son anywhere, even from a long way off. And Jesus says, when the father sees the son, he feels compassion for him. Now that, that word compassion, the original Greek language that Luke would have written that word, that word compassion means literally that the, the father's stomach turned over on itself. Do you know that feeling? He was so moved at the sight of his son that he convulsed and he ran to him. Interesting little, I keep going back to kind of cultural things. Interesting here, though, I just have to share this. Men in this culture didn't run. Strange thing to say. Men didn't run because men wore robes. And you didn't run because if, if you were going to run as a man, you had to lift that robe up in between your legs, letting everybody see everything, no, nothing left to the imagination at this point, and you had to take off. It was considered very undignified for a man to do this. Do you think the father cared, though? I mean, as the story unfolds, does it look like the father cares what everybody else might see and think? No, the father runs to his son, and he falls on his neck. He throws himself on this kid, and he kisses him over and over with tears. Now think about, for just a second, how cruelly and how deeply the son had hurt this man. And yet what we find in the Father, we see no anger, we see no resentment, we see no bitterness, no grudge, no demanding the money back, no explanation for where you've been and what you've been doing, only love. We see a heart bursting with love. In verse 21, the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. Remember, he's, he's rehearsed this along the way, right? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, the signet ring, the family ring. You're back in. And put sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf. Kill it and let's eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and he has been found. And they began to celebrate. I hope it's clear that the son did not expect this kind of homecoming, did he? This is not what he was coming home expecting to find. The son comes home saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
And you know what? He was right. That's not a false statement. That's absolutely true by every account. I mean, that's he, what he did, he forfeited his sonship. He rejected relationship. He wished his father dead. He wasted every cent of his father's hard-earned money on despicable things. He dishonored the family. They'd never get their reputation back after what he'd done to them. And so the son does what any of us would do right here. Don't, don't paint him into a corner. Don't box him into some other place. You and I would do the same thing. He comes home with an apology and a repayment plan. It makes perfect sense. Dad, I'm sorry for what I've done. Make me a slave in the field. Put me out to pasture. Let me work. And maybe, maybe, maybe one day I'll make enough to pay you back. And I'll, 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 I'll square things with you. I'll make it as even as I can. Right? And yet when the father hears this apology, this plan to repay, he doesn't have it. He doesn't hear it. See, the son has missed something about his dad. Clearly he has. He knew, of course, that his dad was a good man. He knew that there was at least some hope in him coming home to him. But it seems that he's missed something about his father that's so key for us when we consider the very heart and character of God. He had missed grace. He knew his father loved him. But he had missed grace. See, here's what grace says. Grace is the word that means gift. Grace is a unique quality that we find in the person and character of God that says, you and I, we do not get the just penalty that our sins deserve. That's what grace says. Grace says that we don't face the ultimate consequence of our rebellion, no matter how far gone we are. We don't live any longer with a dark cloud of judgment hanging over our heads because God has given to us his grace. Now, more than that, think about what I just said. I just said, you know, God basically cancels out all the bad. And that's certainly true. He doesn't just cancel out the bad, though. As if God, when you come to him and he forgives you, he brings you back up to neutral, back up to zero. No, grace does more than that. Grace doesn't just forgive your sin. Grace now floods you with the overabundant love and kindness and goodness of God forever. Grace doesn't just save you from the bad that you've deserved. Grace gives you all the good that you could never deserve. And that's exactly what happens to the son, isn't it? He lays out his apology, his plan to repay. The father's not even listening. He cuts him off in the middle of it, right? Y'all put the robe on him. Put the ring on his finger. Put the sandals on his feet. You think you're going to be a slave in my house? Are you crazy? You're my son. Y'all fire up the grill. And make it a 16-ounce bone-in filet for this kid right here. This is my son. That's what happens. You know, all, all the son was looking for was maybe, just maybe, a second chance to do better, to try harder, to make up for what he had done. If I could just show my dad how truly sorry I am, maybe one day I can earn some trust back. But y'all, the father had no concern for that. He wasn't listening. He wasn't demanding something in return. He wasn't demanding to know where you've been, what you've done, tell me everything, and pay me back. No. What the son finds in his father is what we find in our heavenly father, not a second chance to do better next time. And y'all, it, it concerns me when I look into my own heart that sometimes I think that's what grace really is, that all, all God really stands to give me is a reset button that I've really blown it, I've really messed up, and God, because he loves me, will give me a second chance to do better. But that's not grace. That's not what the son receives. Not a, in that case, he would have been placed out in the field. You work and prove yourself. 
Here's your second chance. But no, y'all, listen. A second chance does a sinner no good. Let's be sure about that. When I look at my own life, as hard as I may try to be good, if God gives me a second chance, I might do incrementally a little better the second time around, but I'll never live in such a way that is worthy of the perfect righteousness of God. A second chance does me no good. If you were in prison and you worked hard to dig yourself out of your cell only to find out that you have dug yourself into the cell next to you, that's what it is for sinners to try harder. We're still imprisoned. Second chance does you no good. What you need, what I need, what the son needed in this story, he needed someone to cover the cost of his sin. Something that he could not do for himself. Something that no amount of hard work could ever repay. What we need when we come to God, we need the slate wiped clean. We need to be purified. And we need our hearts transformed. And that's only something that God can do. That's what grace is. You don't need a reset button. You need to be redeemed. You need salvation and grace. That's what grace is. Y'all, when this father embraces his son, when he wraps the robe around him, he's communicating something here. He's not just saying all is forgiven. He's saying, I cover the cost for you. You come on home. Whatever it is you've done, he doesn't ask the question. Whatever it is you've done, Put it on my account. You're free. The son leaves out from under his father's authority. He goes to a distant land. Finally, he's free. He's convinced in his own mind. But only when he comes home, broken and poor and shamed, only when he comes home does he find out what real freedom looks like in the love and grace of a father who welcomes him home. Y'all, when you place your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ, The free gift of that grace is yours. There is no earning. There is no repayment plan that God institutes for you to prove yourself worthy. There's no such thing. There is simply grace, which means all of God's riches, all of his kindness, his glory, his righteousness, his goodness, his love, his presence, his forgiveness, it's yours. The free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. It costs you nothing. All it requires of you is to come to him that we might receive it. And do you see what happens when God receives a sinner, a repentant sinner, someone who says, I can't fix this, and so that my only hope is to go to the Father, my only hope is to go and receive that robe of righteousness for someone else to pay the penalty for me, for someone else to cover the cost. When he comes home, he finds out that he's not a slave, he's not a hired man in the field, he's a child in the home. That never changed. He is the son of his father. Now think about the context of this real quick. What Luke said in verse 1 These people listening to Jesus, coming near to him, who were they? The tax collectors and the sinners, the worst of the worst, the bottom rung of the ladder. Do you think this story would have come to them like an oasis in a desert place? Do you think this story would have have been to them just a small comfort in the midst of their sin and brokenness? These are people who think that God hates them. They're just sure that God could never accept them on the basis of how they've lived. And Jesus tells a story that absolutely destroys that way of thinking. 
not just for the sinners, but also for the self-righteous, which we'll address next week. But everybody in that room cannot believe what's being said here, that God himself would give a gratuitous grace and love even to the worst of the worst. This is good news. No matter what you've done, no matter for how long you've done it, no matter where you've been, no matter the secret things that if they were ever exposed, you'd have no reason to live anymore because now everybody would know who you really are. Listen, nothing stands between you and this grace. It is free. And a father who delights, who rejoices to give it. At no point was there a sour look on his face. Only love. Let's celebrate. And so for some of us, listen, you're in church right now, but maybe you're far from home. Maybe you've never come home. Uh, and I pray that for you today. Truly and sincerely, I pray that, that for you, right where you are, you know, you know your own heart, you know your own life. But right where you are, that maybe today would be the day that God would look to the horizon today and that he would see you. And that you would feel the loving embrace of a father who does not demand an accounting for what you've done, but instead puts his arms around you, puts his robe of righteousness around you, and says, let's celebrate today. For this son of mine was lost, but now he's been found. This daughter of mine, she was dead but now she's come alive again. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that reminds us of, who, of what we really are. We are prodigals. We are not good enough on our own to be sitting where we sit right now. We are certainly not good enough that on that great day when we come to face to face with you that we'll have enough to show for our lives that you'll be obligated to let us in. Father, if we're honest with who we really are, we are sinners and we need grace. And so thank you, Lord, that in the midst of our great sin, in the midst of our great need, you have not left us to try harder and do better that you sent to us your son, Jesus, to seek and to save that which was lost. Lord, would you do the great work in our hearts right now that we cannot do? We can't manufacture this. You have got to draw us to yourself. You've got to show us our sin. You've got to bring us to our senses. Lord, you've got to bring us to repentance that we would not just own our reality, but that we would resolve to come home to you. And Lord, when we do, and I pray that for some of us today, that we would, that we would be pierced to the heart to say, no more. I'm going home. I'm going where I can find hope and redemption. And Lord, when we do, I pray that we find the overabundance of your grace, that you hold no sin against us, that you do not demand a payment plan, that there is no compensation for what we've done, 
but that you purify us from beginning to end and that you declare over us that we are your sons and daughters. Thank you, Lord, that we have that gift by faith in Jesus. And I I do pray that there may be even just one person in this room that would receive that gift by faith today. No earning. You've paid the price. Let us receive it. And for those of us who are Christians, let us receive it afresh and anew that we might be so grateful for what we've been given that every ounce of our hearts today are inclined to you, that our affections, Lord, are drawn in to a Father who would love us like this. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.